You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we mark the end of our series on Christopher Columbus. This seven-part series is, hands down, the longest we have ever done on this program, and I hope you have enjoyed it. So, last time we left Columbus sitting on a beach in Jamaica. No, he did not have a cocktail in hand while taking in the sun at a resort. Instead, he was stranded, along with his entire crew, over 100 men in all. Columbus had come to the New World looking for a passage to Asia. He had sailed down the Central American coast, being the first, or one of the first, Europeans to set foot in Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. But there was no route to Asia, and an effort to start a colony failed when war broke out between the Spanish and the natives, led by a cacique named Quibian. This meant that Columbus had collected little of value. There was a bit of gold, maybe some pearls, but not much else. But the commercial aspects of the voyage would soon take backseat to something more concerning, specifically the health of the fleet's ships. The Admiral's four vessels were falling apart, mainly because of shipworms which bore into wood and wreak havoc on a ship's hull. Two of Columbus's four ships would be abandoned in Panama, their hulls so compromised they were not safe to take to sea. The other two ships made a desperate try for Hispaniola, but ended up on Jamaica instead. The ships were in such poor condition, they basically were sailed up onto the beach at what is now St. Anne's Bay. Neither would ever put to sea again. And that gets us up to speed in our tale. It was June 1503, and Columbus and his men, 116 of them, were on the northern coast of Jamaica, right about in the center of the island. They had no seaworthy ships, and the men were tired, sick, and malnourished. Using the beach ships as a sort of base, the men of the fleet built a small colony around the two vessels, making thatched huts at the bow and stern of each. Now, Columbus had two things to consider. First, he had to figure out how to get off the island. And second, he needed to survive on the island until he and his men could leave. As for the latter, the local natives were initially friendly to Columbus. For his part, Columbus ordered his men to stay on and around the ships. He, rightfully so, was worried what would happen if the men were free to roam about the countryside. He could not afford to incite the natives, and if his men started taking food or women, he knew the situation would become untenable. But at the outset, the relations with the natives were good, and food was not a major issue. That leaves us with the other question, getting off the island. Columbus's ships were ruined, and they could not be fixed, and they couldn't be taken apart and turned into a vessel of some sort, as Columbus did not have the artisans or skills or tools needed 
to build a seaworthy vessel. And remember, they needed a boat that could go safely on the ocean, not just sail up and down a coastline or on a river. They needed something that could cross the distance to Hispaniola, which was at a minimum about 125 miles. So, without a boat, Columbus's thoughts turned to the local natives. They had large, sturdy canoes, but to sail one more than 100 miles in the open sea was probably asking a bit much. But Columbus really didn't have any choice. Therefore, he asked for volunteers to sail one of the native canoes to Hispaniola. It was a dangerous proposition, and no one volunteered, except for Diego Mendez. A moment to talk about Diego Mendez. We mentioned him in the last episode. He was a very capable man, and fiercely loyal to Columbus. He had uncovered the native plot to attack the settlement back on the Balin River, and he had helped figure out a way to get the men from the beach to the ships when they were stranded. So, after no one volunteered for the job to sail to Hispaniola, Mendez stepped up to the plate. He reportedly said, quote, My lord, I have but one life, but I will risk it in your lordship's service and for the good of all here present. End quote. Well done, Diego. So, the loyal Diego Mendez would procure two large canoes from the local natives. He and his men would modify the canoes, adding a simple sail to each as well as other small adjustments to make them more stable on the open sea. Mendez would lead one canoe, while one of the other captains, Bartholomew Fieschi, would lead the other. Each canoe would hold six Spaniards and ten Indians. The plan was that if the two canoes made it to Hispaniola, Mendez would go in search of aid, while Fieschi would return to Jamaica to let Columbus and the rest of the men know that help was on the way. Mendez then took the canoes to the eastern edge of Jamaica, the goal to make the voyage to Hispaniola as short as possible. The first attempt to launch the canoes was thwarted when some of the locals threatened Mendez and his men. In response to the threat, Bartholomew Columbus and a force of 70 men would escort Mendez and the canoes to the eastern edge of the island, just to be sure that nothing bad happened. Since this was hurricane season, Mendez waited until the weather looked favorable before setting sail. Finally, in mid-July, the two canoes pushed off into the ocean. The goal was Hispaniola, 125 miles across rough, open seas. Now, we are going to leave Diego Mendez and his desperate journey to Hispaniola, but we will catch up with him in short order. Let us go back to the beach that Christopher Columbus and the rest of the men were now stranded on. So, here was Columbus on the island of Jamaica. There were no European settlements, and the odds of a ship just happening by were slim. He had put tight controls on his men, forbidding them to steal from the natives or have relations with the women. Columbus himself was suffering from various ailments, both mental and physical. His arthritis was so bad, he sometimes could not even get out of bed. And in his writings, he broods about the fact that his career was destroyed. He was clearly depressed, and his men were concerned that he was going crazy, which he might have been to a degree. This made for a kind of toxic stew. The weary, angry, frustrated men of the fleet turned their emotions against the admiral. They blamed him for their situation, and resented his strict rules. Also, everyone knew that if Mendez got to Hispaniola safely, a rescue ship would reach them within weeks. But as time went by, weeks and then months, nothing happened. Bartholomew Fieschi did not return, as expected, to let everyone know that help was on the way, and no rescue ship appeared in the harbor. Nothing. So, the months dragged by, and as 1503 came to a close, the soldiers and sailors of the fleet grew more and more disenchanted with their situation, and this all led to mutiny. As noted, the men were anxious and frustrated. They had been on the island for half a year, no word had reached them, no help had come, and Columbus had refused to let anyone else try and sail for Hispaniola. 
Finally, the men had had enough of sitting around and doing nothing. Enter the duo of Francisco and Diego Porras. Francisco Porras is the important guy here. He was technically the captain of Santiago, but he had been a political appointee, and it had been Bartholomew Columbus who had really commanded the vessel. Diego Porras, his brother, was the fleet's comptroller. The brothers slowly worked the fleet's survivors, sowing discord and resentment against Columbus and his supporters, and by the end of the year, a rebellion was ready to go. The mutiny took place on January 2, 1504. The Porras brothers wrote out articles of mutiny, and about half of the fleet's men signed them. The actual mutiny did not include any violence. What happened was that when many of Columbus's loyal men were away from the camp, the mutineers seized control. Columbus was afraid that he was going to be murdered when the rebels came for him, but that was not the case. Instead, the mutineers found a sick, aging man who could barely stand due to his arthritis. When Bartholomew Columbus heard about the mutiny, he gathered up some loyal men and rushed to defend his brother. Bartholomew confronted the mutineers and convinced them to leave the camp, pointing out that murdering the admiral would never be forgiven. It was one thing to demand fair pay, better food, or the end of harsh conditions, but it was another thing to murder one's captain. The men of the fleet knew this, and they were reluctant to cross that line. The mutineers, who added to their ranks once the deed had been done, departed. They took supplies and provisions with them, plus they collected as many canoes as could be had, and headed for the eastern end of the island. Also, now that the men were free of Columbus's rules, the island's native population would suffer as a result. Ferdinand Columbus wrote this of the mutineers, quote, They inflicted outrages on the Indians, end quote, which likely meant that they stole and killed and raped. The rebels then encouraged the natives to go and kill Columbus, saying that they were doing these things on his orders. Luckily for Columbus, the natives did not attack him. So, the mutineers were now free to do what they wanted, and what they wanted was to be free of the island. So they gathered up food and water and made good on their plan to sail to Hispaniola. The result was a disaster. Once at sea, the weather quickly turned bad. The Spanish had brought with them many Indians to help row the canoes, and when they decided they needed to lighten their load, the Spanish began to throw the Indians overboard. The natives grabbed onto the canoes in a desperate attempt to avoid drowning, but the Spanish hacked off their hands or beat them when they did so. Ferdinand Columbus reported that 18 Indians were killed in this fashion. When it became obvious that they could not make the voyage, the renegades returned to Jamaica. Over the next few weeks, the mutineers would make several more attempts to sail to Hispaniola. Each time they failed, and they were forced back to Jamaica. Eventually, the rebels gave up their plans. As for Columbus, he was still at the base that he had set up around his beached ships, waiting for a rescue. But things were getting dangerous for him. The mutineers had caused the Indians to resent the Spanish, including Columbus. The Indians weren't exactly thrilled to share their food, which was running low, with the admiral and his men, even if Columbus was able to blame the violence and looting on the rebels. Ultimately, Columbus was wearing out his welcome. The Indians had less and less for him and his men, and they, no doubt, were probably wondering if they really wanted this guy hanging around causing such a headache. Sensing his vulnerability, Columbus hatched a rather brilliant and devious plan. On one of the ships was a book detailing lunar eclipses, and Columbus realized that on February 29th, there would be such an eclipse. He then summoned the local caciques and told them that God would punish those who didn't aid him or who would cause him harm. The Indians scoffed at Columbus, a pathetic-looking, crippled sailor, abandoned by most of his men. But that night, the moon turned to a reddish disk as the eclipse began, and the Indians were terrified. 
As the Indians freaked out, the Casicas begged Columbus to return the moon to them. At this point, Columbus went off alone for a short spell, then returned, saying he had appealed to God and that he would return things to normal. Then the eclipse waned, and Columbus would have no more problems with food. Now the locals saw him as a wizard of immense power, and they did not want to mess with him. So, by March, the mutineers had given up their attempts to sail to Hispaniola. There were rumblings that they intended to finish off Columbus and his supporters, and seize the ships on the beach. But then, in late March, a miracle happened. A caravel appeared on the horizon. Their salvation, it seemed, had arrived. Now, I want to back up eight months to July of 1503 and recount the voyage of Diego Mendez to Hispaniola. The two canoes, each with six Spaniards and ten natives, headed toward Hispaniola. It was a desperate journey. If the weather had turned bad, it was hurricane season in the Caribbean, their small boats would likely never have survived. Thus the canoes plowed toward Hispaniola, the men rowing for their lives. The sun would have been brutal. After two days, they ran out of fresh water, and there was little rain to help them. One of the natives would die of dehydration, while several others would die from drinking seawater. For two more days they rode, their water and food nearly depleted. Then, finally, they sighted land, Hispaniola. Both canoes had braved the open sea and made it. The survivors would spend two days recuperating from their arduous voyage before taking their next steps. Remember, Bartholomew Fieschi was supposed to sail back to Jamaica and let Columbus know what was happening. But all of the men, both Spanish and Indian, refused to participate in the return journey. I mean, can you really blame them? They had almost died the first time, and a return trip would be even more dangerous as they would be rowing against the currents. And what if the weather turned against them? It was a suicide mission. Plus, the men likely figured that a rescue ship could be sent once they reached Santo Domingo, so why risk their lives taking a canoe back to Jamaica? Well, that's solid thinking, but in reality, getting a rescue ship sent to Jamaica was easier said than done. The Spanish were on the northwestern edge of Hispaniola, a rugged and remote area called Jaragua, formerly the home of Francisco Roldan, Rebel Roldan, if you remember from an earlier episode. Diego Mendez, despite suffering from malaria, marched the survivors through the mountains until he reached a Spanish settlement. From here, Mendez was about 250 miles from Santo Domingo. But when word of the survivors reached the governor of the island, Nicolas de Ovando, he ordered Mendez and the others to stay put. He used the excuse that the region was in rebellion, which it was, and that it wasn't safe for the survivors to come to Santo Domingo. However, we need to remember that Ovando hated Columbus, and he was not inclined to help the admiral, or anyone, from his expedition. So instead of getting relief to Columbus on Jamaica, Mendez and the other survivors were kept in the Jaragua area for seven months. During this time, Mendez would witness the pacification of Jaragua by Ovando. I use pacification in quotation marks, by the way, there. It was a brutal affair, far more vicious than anything Columbus had ever conducted. Only when the slaughter was complete did Mendez receive permission to travel to Santo Domingo. Once in Santo Domingo, Mendez drew on funds that Columbus had available to him and began to put together a rescue ship. But this was not that easy. It wasn't as if there were ships just sitting around waiting to be hired. Mendez had to wait until several ships arrived from Spain. He would then hire one of these ships and stock it with meat and bread and wine. So, with Mendez getting the rescue ship ready, Ovando decided to dispatch a ship of his own to Jamaica to find out exactly what was the situation with Columbus. And that takes us up to March of 1504, when the small caravel had appeared in the harbor at St. Anne's Bay. 
For Columbus and his men, it was a miracle. They were saved, or so they thought. This ship, however, was the one sent by Ovando. Ovando's ship was small and did not come to rescue Columbus and his men. Instead, the ship's captain, Diego de Escobar, gave Columbus some pork and wine and said that a larger ship would arrive at a later date to take the survivors of the expedition to Santo Domingo. And then the ship departed, taking no one with them. Captain Escobar did take back to Hispaniola a letter from Columbus addressed to the governor. In it, Columbus wisely was respectful and flattering toward his enemy. He acknowledged that Ovando was his boss and fawned over the man. I mean, at this point, you gotta do what you gotta do to get rescued. In reality, Ovando was probably sizing up Columbus. The governor had made many enemies, and the last thing he wanted was an emboldened Columbus to come marching into Santo Domingo. So, as Diego Mendez worked to get a rescue ship to Jamaica, Columbus found himself stranded yet again. Now he had to just survive the next few months. The problem was that most of Columbus's men were mutineers. With rescue in the near future, they began to fear their fates. I mean, they had rebelled against the Admiral. That meant death. What would happen to them when they returned to Hispaniola and word of their deeds got out? Columbus tried to calm their fears, offering them clemency for their actions. But they were wary. Columbus could be an incredibly cruel man when he needed to be, and they did not trust him. Plus, there was the departure of the caravel sent by Ovando. Many wondered if that was some sort of trick. Perhaps they would never be rescued as long as Columbus lived. I mean, all the men knew of the bad blood between the admiral and the governor. This all led to a standoff between Columbus and the mutineers. The mutineers would eventually request that they get their own ship to return to Santo Domingo. Plus, they wanted supplies that Columbus possessed, as theirs were running low. Columbus refused on both counts. In mid-May, the rebels took up residence at an Indian village near the beach ships. Their plan was to attack and seize the camp. After discovering the plan, Bartholomew Columbus led some loyal men to the village. When negotiations failed, a fight broke out. In the melee, several of the rebels were killed, as was one of Columbus's men. The rebel leader, Francisco Porras, was captured. The capture of Porras essentially broke the rebellion, and the mutineers sent pleas of mercy to Columbus on May 20th. They confessed their crimes and swore loyalty to him. The admiral, satisfied with their confessions, granted amnesty to the men, except for Francisco Porras, the leader. On June 30th, 1504, a caravel, courtesy of Diego Mendez, arrived at St. Anne's Bay. Mendez himself was not with the ship, as he had instead sailed back to Spain, intent on reporting to the king and queen what had happened to the great admiral. Mendez and Columbus would later renew their friendship, and Mendez reportedly said this of the encounter, quote, His lordship told me that in all of his life he had never known such a joyful day, since he never expected to leave Jamaica alive, End quote. So, Columbus and his men were saved, courtesy of Diego Mendez eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Columbus and his men would board the rescue ship and head back to Santo Domingo. It would, however, take them time as they fought storms and winds and currents. 
Finally, the ship would reach Hispaniola on August 13th and then head to Santo Domingo. Columbus was, surprisingly, received with honor and dignity by his old enemy, Nicolas de Ovando. As we have said, the two men hated each other, and Ovando was likely making sure that any Columbus supporters in the colony didn't find a reason to be angry with him. It's the keep-an-enemy-closer strategy. Columbus, ever prickly, took offense to anything that he deemed remotely an insult, and Ovando had no problem delivering his share of barbs at the Admiral. One insult aimed right at Columbus was Ovando's pardoning of the rebel leader, Francisco Poros. Ovando not only pardoned the guy, but he restored his position and back pay. Well, the sniping would not last long as Columbus, his son Ferdinand, and brother Bartholomew, as well as their personal servants, departed for Spain on September 12th. The voyage back would not be without drama, as a storm forced one of the two ships to return to Santo Domingo, and in another storm, the ship with Columbus and his family had a mast break. However, the ship would overcome the problems and reach Spain on November 7th, two and a half years since departing back in 1502. Columbus had overcome mutiny, hurricanes, shipwrecks, warfare, and being stranded on an island. But he had survived and returned. Columbus would call this fourth expedition the High Voyage, and he felt that it was his greatest, perhaps because he had shared it with his brother and son, and he had overcome so much. I do want to point out one really important fact about this fourth voyage. Bartholomew Columbus's name has come up a lot in the past two episodes, and that's because he was a critical figure in it. The truth is that Christopher Columbus's health had reduced his role dramatically on this fourth voyage. There is no doubt he was the leader and focal point, but it was Bartholomew who had done so much for his brother. He had been a leader at sea and on land, and had saved his brother on numerous occasions. I just wanted to make sure everyone realized just how important Bartholomew had been to this voyage. Without him, it is unlikely the Admiral would have survived. So, we have gotten Christopher Columbus back to Spain. His fourth voyage is complete, and it is the Admiral's last great adventure. The fourth voyage, in the eyes of the world at the time, was not exactly a rousing success. Columbus had found more lands to explore, and he had demonstrated that it was unlikely that a strait through Central America existed. But otherwise, he had lost his four ships, his men had mutinied, and dozens had died. There was no route to Asia, and he had collected little of value on the expedition. As noted, the expedition's main success was the further exploration and mapping of the areas we now call Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. But with his return to Spain, Columbus was done as an explorer. His time had passed, and it was up to others to carry on his works. Of course, that doesn't mean Columbus realized all of this. As soon as he got back to Spain, he wanted to petition the king and queen for yet another expedition to the New World. But it was not to be, and there were numerous reasons. First, Columbus's health was deteriorating, and everyone knew it. It was folly to trust him to such important affairs. Second, the Spanish monarchs had already dispatched others to explore South and Central America. This included Juan de la Cosa, Columbus's old mapmaker and pilot, and Alonso de Ojeda, the conquistador who had been on Columbus's second voyage. It was time for New Blood to do this kind of work. And the third reason was that Queen Isabella, Columbus's most ardent supporter at court, was dying. The Spanish queen had been sick for months, and she would die on November 26, 1504, at the age of 53, just 19 days after Columbus returned from the Americas. King Ferdinand had always supported Columbus, but not to the extent of his wife, and when Isabella died, it ended any hopes Columbus had of making another voyage. Thus, Christopher Columbus would spend the next year or so sort of being a pain in the butt to King Ferdinand. 
he would petition the crown for all the stuff he thought he was due. Money, titles, honors, you get the idea. In the end, however, the crown pointed out that Columbus's original agreement, signed back in 1492, known as the Capitulations of Santa Fe, talked of him establishing a trade route to Asia. That is something that never happened, and thus the king and his advisors were content to discard the agreement, saying that Columbus had not followed through on his end of the bargain, so why should they? All of this would leave a bitter taste in Columbus's mouth, and it would remain there for the rest of his life. King Ferdinand was done with the admiral. He had other things to worry about, as Spain was on the brink of civil war due to secession issues following his wife's death. Over the next year, Columbus's health rapidly declined. Even if he had been granted command of another expedition to the New World, he would never have been able to participate. As a sign that he held some support and prestige in the Spanish court, King Ferdinand would come and visit Columbus in early 1506. But the admiral was too ill at this time to greet the king, and he had to send his brother in his place. On May 15, 1506, Columbus would dictate his will. He knew that he was dying. The admiral was miserable in his last days, suffering from fevers, headaches, vomiting, and diarrhea. Modern doctors believe he may have suffered from reactive arthritis, as well as malaria. Christopher Columbus would die on May 20, 1506, in Valladolid, Spain. He was 54 years old. His sons, Ferdinand and Diego, as well as his brother Bartholomew, were at his bedside, as were some of his loyal companions, including Diego Mendez, who had saved Columbus on the final voyage. Columbus would have a modest funeral and be buried in Valladolid, but his body would go on a bit of a journey over the course of the next several centuries. Three years after his death, his body would be moved to a crypt in a Franciscan monastery near Seville. Then it would be shipped to Santo Domingo in 1536 or 1542. I have seen both years quoted. But 250 or so years later, in 1795, France would take control of Santo Domingo, so Columbus's remains were sent to Havana, Cuba. Then, finally, in 1898, Columbus's body would be shipped back to Spain, where it remains today at the Cathedral of Seville. Even in death, Columbus had managed to make one last journey to the New World and back. So that is it, the life of Christopher Columbus, arguably the most famous explorer in history. Now, like any major historical figure, we want to take a look at the legacy of Columbus before we leave today. But first, I want to do some bookkeeping and see what happened to some of the key figures in the life of the Admiral. Let us start with Nicolas de Ovando, the governor of Hispaniola and Columbus's hated enemy. The man would remain ruler of Hispaniola for several more years and is remembered for his cruelty toward the native Indian population. As a ruler, Ovando was brutal. In one incident, called the Jaragua Massacre, Ovando lured dozens of caciques to a celebration. He would trap 80 of them in a large building and burn them alive. During his tenure as governor, the native Taino Indian population would drop from hundreds of thousands to just 60,000. Also, he would be the man to introduce African slaves to the New World as a way to supplement the native population, which was dying off. None of this makes for a good legacy. Reports of his cruelty had reached Spain, and on her deathbed, Queen Isabella asked her husband, King Ferdinand, to recall Ovando. Ferdinand would honor the request, but not until 1509. Ovando's successor would be Christopher Columbus's son, Diego. That's got to zing a little. As for Ovando, he would die in Madrid in 1511 at the age of 50. The next person I want to talk about is Bartholomew Columbus. Bartholomew was a key person in his brother's life. While the guy was not without fault, he proved to be an able and trusted advisor to his brother. After Christopher's death, 
Bartholomew Columbus would return to the New World in 1509. He would be named Lord of Mona, an island between Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. He would die in 1514 or 1515 at the age of 53 or 54. Now, let us do a quick review of Columbus's sons, Diego and Ferdinand. Diego Columbus was the eldest of the two boys, and thus would get his father's titles, second admiral of the Indies, second viceroy of the Indies, and the fourth governor of the Indies. However, the titles were hereditary, and thus had little value. Still, Diego was a person of importance. In 1508, he was named governor of the Indies, settling in at Santo Domingo once he arrived in Hispaniola in 1509. And in 1511, Diego would be given command of his father's discoveries by a royal council, a major victory for the Columbus family. It was something that his father had always fought for. However, Diego Columbus, like his father, would have an on-and-off relationship with the Spanish crown. He had some failures and some successes. However, too many setbacks led to his recall to Spain in 1514 by King Ferdinand. Diego would eventually get his job back in 1520 after the king died. However, he would be called yet again in 1523 after backing a failed settlement in what is now Venezuela. Diego Columbus would die in 1526 at the age of 45. The Columbus family disputes with the Spanish crown, which had been going on for decades, would be finally settled in 1536 by Diego's son, Louis Colon. He would give up all of the Columbus claims in exchange for a large annuity, the island of Jamaica as a fief, and an estate in Panama, plus titles. Finally, the last person on our list is Ferdinand Columbus, the illegitimate son of Christopher and a passenger on the high voyage. Ferdinand had been born to Beatriz de Arana, who Columbus had never married. Unlike his father, Ferdinand was known to have a steady temperament and patience. He would grow up to become a writer and a scholar and a collector of books. His library was one of the most famous in Europe, boasting over 15,000 books, which was massive for the time. After his death, the collection would be passed on to the Cathedral of Seville and acquire the name Biblioteca Columbia, a library that still exists to this day. During his life, Ferdinand would publish an account of the legendary high voyage, which we concluded in today's episode. Ferdinand would die in 1539 at the age of 50 or 51. So that is it for the people in the Admiral's life. Next, we take a look at the man, Christopher Columbus. Let's start by checking off the highlights. The guy had reached the New World. It is one of the most pivotal moments in world history. His willingness to brave the unknown, to defy skeptics, was bold and audacious and even a little nuts. Columbus would be the first European to reach such places as Cuba, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Dominica, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Venezuela. Also, he was the first European to reach the South American and North American mainlands. That's a pretty impressive list. Now, some people have called Columbus a poor sailor, pointing to things such as his second voyage when he sailed hundreds of miles south of his destination, or that he lost ships on his voyages, including the entire fleet on his last expedition, or that he never found Asia. But I disagree. Being a sailor was an incredibly dangerous life. Columbus managed to go into the unknown on four different occasions and return each time. He navigated through a thousand islands and countless dangers, ridden out hurricanes and storms, and managed to get where he needed to go despite uncertain winds and currents. And he did this without sophisticated navigation tools or maps to guide him. And in the end, he always came back. I don't think it can be stressed how difficult it was for a ship of this era to sail uncharted waters. One mistake, and a ship would have its hull ripped apart by hidden shoals. 
One mistake, and a ship could be crushed by a wave or thrown against rocks. Time and time again, Columbus braved the unknown, repeatedly demonstrating his ability as a sailor and navigator. Also, with regards to not finding Asia, well, that's kind of silly in my book. The guy's instincts were right. Asia was to the west, just a lot further than anyone ever imagined. I'm not going to ding a guy for finding two continents instead of reaching Asia. So, those were the big accomplishments of the man. They are pretty amazing. But let us look at the other side of the coin. The first thing about Columbus I want to mention is his personality. He was prickly and stubborn and easily offended. He was also greedy and seemed to crave attention and recognition. He also seems to have been a man who suffered from anxiety and depression. This drive for glory and riches and fame helped propel him on his journeys and no doubt helped him get home. But his personality really hurt him when it came to be an administrator, and it really makes him an unsympathetic person at times. With that said, here are some of the negatives about Columbus. First, the guy was a poor administrator. His attempts to govern Hispaniola ended in rebellion by his own people and war with the natives. He instituted an economic system that destroyed an existing world. It would prove devastating to the populace. Tens of thousands would die as a result. And we cannot forget his terrible foray into slavery. Columbus's greed overwhelmed his own morals, and he took the natives of the Americas to be economic fodder for his own use. All of these things were part of his insatiable desire for wealth and success, not to mention his ego. Time and time again, he made decisions that reveal an obstinate, deeply insecure man who was obsessed with riches, recognition, and praise. One biographer, Lawrence Burgreen, wrote, quote, It would be said that over the course of his four voyages, he, Columbus, had discovered everything but learned nothing. End quote. And that pretty much sums up Columbus in a nutshell. The guy had so many opportunities and had accomplished a ton of things, yet he rarely saw the big picture. He was blinded by his own pettiness and greed. It is immensely sad, and it makes Columbus a less than sympathetic character. Ultimately, the world's perception of Columbus has changed over the centuries. In America, in particular, he has been embraced as a hero, the man who helped forge a new world. The American writer Washington Irvin penned a popular biography of Columbus in 1828. The book depicted Columbus as a brave and honorable man who was constantly bedeviled by lesser individuals, essentially playing into Columbus's own image of himself. It glossed over the failures and faults of the man and painted him as a grand hero. And this is the image many people embraced, this sort of nationalistic take on him, bold and brave and honorable and forward-thinking. And thus, Columbus is honored today, particularly in America, as well as his native Italy. He is like Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln, with towns and cities and schools and rivers named after the guy. But time has obviously given us another side of the story, and Columbus has become, to some, a representation of the evils that Europeans brought to the Americas. He represents the exploitation, the murder, the rape, and the enslavement of countless native peoples. He led a genocide, some say. Now, Columbus's defenders will argue that he was a man of his times. The economic system Columbus established in Hispaniola was not that different than what other nations had done in Africa or in other lands. And Columbus's treatment of the native peoples was not unusual for the time period either. The argument is that it wasn't really Columbus himself who did this, it was just the way the world was at the time. It doesn't make it right, it's just the fact. Well, I would say that there is some truth to that argument. Columbus was a man of his time, and his attitudes and actions were in line with what you'd expect from other men in his position. If some other guy had been in Columbus's shoes, 
the situation would likely have produced similar results. That said, you can't give the guy a totally free pass. Yes, people are a product of their time and place and situation, but there are always alternatives. Even in Columbus's time, men and women were passionate about treating the native people more fairly. Bartolomé de las Casas, a contemporary of Columbus, would write fervently about this very thing. Many in the church would recognize the sanctity of human life, whether it be European or Indian, and they were appalled by the slaughter and exploitation of the native peoples. So, to say that there were no alternatives is not true. Those alternatives were just simply not commonly practiced. All of this has made Columbus a target for some people, and rightfully so. He deserves a share of criticism, and he's the guy that started this entire process because he's the one who got to the New World first. Thus, he's the one who gets the blame. However, I tend to see shades of gray in a person's life, not just black and white. Columbus isn't just good or bad. He had his very good deeds and traits, and his very bad. I think we just have to accept that about the guy. He was not perfect. He did amazing things, and he did some terrible things too. The final thing I want to mention about Christopher Columbus is the what-if factor. And that is, what if he had failed to find the Americas? What if his fleet had been sunk on the first voyage? Or what if someone else had been given the job instead of him? The answer to this is strictly my opinion, but I will say that I think the rediscovery of the Americas was coming sooner than later. If Columbus had not done it, someone else would have taken up the mantle and done so within a generation. Vasco da Gama would reach India in 1498, and it would open up an entirely new trade route to the Far East. Someone else would have wanted part of that action, just like Columbus. And if Columbus hadn't found the Americas, someone else would have gotten the go-ahead and made landfall. So, in some ways, Columbus was simply at the right place at the right time. But someone has to be, so it may as well have been him. His voyage would make him famous and change the world. So, that is it. The conclusion of our seven-part series on the legendary Christopher Columbus. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.